This morning, we are starting a series through the month of December that we are simply calling Jesus Did That. And uh, man, um, at the end of the day, it's really just an excuse for us to get to know Jesus a little bit better. And at the end of the day, it's just an invitation for us to ask, what does it look like for us to be a little more like Jesus, even as we step into this Christmas season? And so uh, we are going to just be looking at the life of Jesus, some of the things he did while he was on earth. Again, Christmas is a time where we talk about the fact that he came to earth, but came to earth to do what? Um, what did he look like? What was he like when he was here on earth? And we at Mission Point love to talk about no one more than the person of Jesus himself. We believe all of life is about him. We believe the Bible is about him. So this is just a perfect excuse for us to do a little more of that. And uh, for some of you, you might not know um, much about Jesus. We're thankful that you're here. We're thankful that you're tuning in. Um, For some of us, maybe we know Jesus or we think we have certain perceptions of him. And we just want to pray, Spirit, just continue to grow our view of Jesus beyond what we know or beyond what we think we know and make us more like him. Uh, This morning, we are going to look at the first miracle Jesus ever performed. If you have a copy of the Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, the verses will be up on the screen. You can follow along that way. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, we would love to get one into your hands. Please flag any of us down um, or stop by the connection corner and just let somebody know you need a physical copy of the Bible. We would love to get that um, into your hands. But we are going to be in John chapter 2, starting at verse 1, and uh, we are going to get right to work. Here's what it says. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother, Mary, was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. I'm sorry, not sorry, but if you've been around Mission Point for a while, then it won't surprise you that we could probably spend the next three weeks just talking about these two verses right here. And if you think I'm joking, you better ask somebody. Um, I was so struck by so many things as I reread a story that I had not interacted with for quite a while. And a number of things just emerged um, right away. And um, I'll share a couple of those uh, since you asked. Now, let me just also say that um, some of the things that we'll observe together in this story will mess with your sensibilities. So just brace yourself for that, right? I mean, we didn't come to church to leave the same way, right? We didn't come to church just so that our thoughts can be affirmed and confirmed. And then we leave thinking the exact same things. We hope that the Spirit of God will maybe mess us up a little bit. And I pray that that's the case um, this morning. But John chapter 2 opens up with a relatively tame um, observation. Jesus is at a mega party, like turned up. I know it says a wedding, um, I know that, uh, and technically it was a wedding because two people uh, got married, but oh man, in that cultural context, a wedding wasn't just a ceremony, it was like a community celebration with music and dancing and lots of drinking that could last 
almost a week in its duration. Um, But besides all of that, we'll get back to that. One of the things that struck me right away was uh, this simple thought, uh, observation. I don't know why this struck me, so I thought I'd share it with you. But um, Jesus had friends. Jesus had friends. Not like, what a friend we have in Jesus. I mean, like, completely apart from him being creator, completely apart from him being savior, people loved being around Jesus and loved inviting him to stuff. Um, I think we so often forget that Jesus was a person with thoughts and feelings and a sense of humor and a laugh that you could recognize um, from quite a distance away. He wasn't just this spiritual machine who cranked out sermons and policed people's morality. John tells us that Jesus was invited to this wedding party. And uh, based on the fact that um, his mom is there and she seems to have a little more of a pronounced role in this ceremony, it's most likely some close family friends of his. Jesus was invited to a party because the couple wanted him there. Um, Not to officiate the wedding, not to pray for the food. Uh, He's not there to preach a sermon or perform a miracle. Matter of fact, they didn't know at this point that Jesus could perform miracles at all. Um, He was there because they wanted him to be there. Jesus had friends. People really, really liked Jesus. They enjoyed being around Jesus. If the picture you have of Jesus isn't one that people are drawn to because they enjoy being around him, you have an unbiblical picture of Jesus. Uh, I love the way Luke describes Jesus as he grew up. Luke chapter 2 verse 52 and it says this, and Jesus grew and as he grew, he grew in wisdom and he grew in stature. He grew in favor with God And he grew in favor with men. He grew in favor with people. He was an enjoyable person to be around. I just thought I'd point that out in case you have a picture of wagging finger Jesus with a frown face all of the time. Who's always crabby and upset about something. That's not the picture portrayed of him in the Bible. But also, I just wanted to point that out to say this. Um... If you're a Christian who people don't particularly enjoy being around, don't blame Jesus. That's not on him. I've heard too many Christians talking about, it's just because we're followers of Jesus Christ. That's why people don't enjoy. No, that's not why. Because people loved being around him. I'm just telling you, as we step into this Christmas holiday season, I pray that the church will be people who are like Jesus and people are drawn to us and they enjoy being around us. 
In fact, if you study the story of Jesus, people were constantly drawn to him, especially kids. Kids loved being around Jesus. Kids who didn't even know what a miracle was. Loved Jesus so much that often his disciples had to say like, "Uh, please stay away. Can you guys please give him some room as they were drawn to him because he embodied the fruit of the spirit. That's what Jesus was like. He was loving, he was joyful, he was patient, he was peaceful, he was self-controlled. Who doesn't want to be around a person like that, even if you might disagree with some of the things that he believed? I just pray as we step into this holiday season, that will be us. That man, our picture would not be like everyone's upset with me. I'm this drama and tension with everybody. People don't like being around me. And somehow we've blamed Jesus. Like it's because of our godliness. Mm. Don't blame Jesus for that. Anyway, uh, verse number three. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. I don't know if I mentioned, but Jesus was at a serious party. So serious that these people have drank up all the wine. Now, we haven't heard anything um, from Mary, the mother of Jesus, um, man, in about 18 years since she lost Jesus for a few days one time when he was 12 years old. And then here she reemerges um, Again, Joseph, Jesus' early father, most likely died. So here's Mary, a widow, at the wedding of some family friends. Um, When these people, party people, drink up all the wine, Mary comes to Jesus, lets him know they're out of wine. And she's clearly experiencing some tension, some anxiety about this pretty significant crisis. Um, Now, in this particular day and age, in this particular context, wine was a major fixture at a party of this magnitude. And running out of this staple amenity would have been bad. This would have been humiliating. This would have taken your social status down a few rungs and you would never have outlived it. You would have become, oh, you're, you're the Smiths or the, the Johnsons. Oh, yeah, I heard about y'all. You ran out of wine. Like that was my grandparents. I know. We heard about them. This would live with your family for generations. This would have been embarrassing. This would kind of be like finding out at the, you know, during the, your, your wedding ceremony, that the catering company that was supposed to provide all the food for all your guests at the reception just canceled. And they were also responsible for bringing the wedding cake. Because the payment didn't go through. Right? And now the organizers, the rock, paper, scissoring, like, you tell the bride. The rock paper said, yeah, yeah, I won again. You tell the guest. This would be embarrassing, except at a different level culturally than anything that we could even relate to our party type of situations. Um, so I picture Jesus. He's sitting and he's talking and he's laughing with people at this party. I don't picture Jesus sitting there 
with his little holy heavenly journal just marking how much everyone is drinking, you know, and writing it down. Um, he's sitting there with his people when um, Mary interrupts him with this significant crisis for their friends. And uh, I don't picture Jesus, by the way, responding to this by rolling his eyes and saying, oh, they ran out of wine. I bet they did, you know. Well, we don't have to guess. John tells us how Jesus responds to this alcohol shortage crisis. Verse number four. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. (laughs) The church has struggled with this for centuries. You should see the dances we do around this. Like what do we even do and how do we defend Jesus? Why you got to be so rude? Like, Like Mary's a human too, right? And we're just not quite known what to do with this. Like Jesus is so apparently rude to his Mother, to which I say, Jesus is at a party that's so turned up that uh, the alcohol has ran out. I feel like he's already on church discipline. Why are we concerned about how he talked to his mother? But regardless, woman, he says. Uh, he doesn't address Mary by their human family relationship. Not mom. Not moms, not mummy, none of the sort. He addresses her by this generic uh, term, woman, which just loosely translated means adult female created by God. Oh, nice. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not being rude to his earthly mother. He's not being you know, dismissive in, in any way. I think once Jesus' ministry launched at the age of 30, Jesus officially started his earthly ministry. And when that happened, he began to exaggerate the fact that his primary job on earth, his primary role was not to be son of Mary. It was to be rescuer of all. And he started to communicate that way. Woman! Because at that point, Jesus was starting to communicate, you are no more special to me than every other woman at this party. That doesn't help, right? In our American context, that feels like a really mean, after 30 years and everything that I've done for you type of thing. But that's not how Mary would have experienced this, especially understanding the mission of her son. In fact, later on, Jesus' family, siblings would come to see him while he was um, ministering in a certain location. And someone went to the house and told him, Jesus, your family's outside. And Jesus' response is, who are my brothers and sisters? If not the people who share in doing the will of my Father in heaven. Again, he is changing 
the context and the playing field. My primary mission is one of rescuing. And a matter of fact, when Jesus introduced himself, his favorite way to introduce himself was as the son of man, the son of humanity. It is one way of making himself accessible to everybody. And by the way, if you think about this, it makes sense. What Mary needed most from Jesus was not their family biological relationship. What she needed most from him was his role as rescuer of This is not a diss. This is not Jesus being rude in any way. Um, I think we've looked at this passage through our cultural context and our lens and we've viewed it as rude. And in that case, the rest of it doesn't get much better, right? Woman, he says, why are you involving me in this wine situation? It's not yet time for me to start performing miracles. He says, my hour has not yet come. This is so fascinating to me. Jesus says to to Mary, why are you involving me? As far as I know, today is not supposed to be the day for my first miracle. What? Woman, why are you involving me? A miracle was not on my agenda for today, which is the perfect time for us to take a theological sidebar just for a moment. Because spoiler alert, Jesus is going to perform the miracle that his mom wants him to perform. But that just raises some messy questions about Jesus. Question number one. So hang on a second. Did Jesus really not know what he was going to do that day? Because I thought Jesus was, we'll put a big word up on the screen, omniscient. I thought Jesus was all-knowing. I thought he knew everything. Another question, did Jesus not plan to to do this thing, but then he changed his mind? Huh? I thought Jesus was, another big word on the screen, immutable. I thought he was unchanging. Not like the shifting sands, like people. Wow. And then another question, like, wait, did Jesus not obey what his father in heaven wanted him to do that day? And instead, he went with what his mom wanted? Like, what's happening here? I thought Jesus was perfectly righteous and obedient. And then, but man, I love these stories and this season to talk about Jesus because a story like this invites us into the messiness of another big word, incarnation. Um, that Jesus became human. That Jesus was fully God and fully man. That's what Christmas represents. And yet it is such a messy thing as much as we've loved to clean it up. And I think it shows up here as well. So, did Jesus know? It's very interesting. Um, As God, Jesus was omniscient. All-knowing. 
all-knowing, but as a man. Jesus chose to limit the free exercise of his omniscience. That's powerful, by the way, the more you start to think about it. Jesus is more beautiful than you realized. As God, he knows everything. But as a man, he chose to limit the free exercise of his omniscience, his all-knowingness. Unless it was God's will in that particular occasion. Jesus was omniscient, but he wasn't always omniscienting. Um, uh, my teens are in the room, but I'm going to say this anyway. Um, I technically have access to their phones. <laughs> like if I wanted to look at their phones and see what they're doing on their phones, I technically have access to them. But as the best dad they've ever had, I choose to limit my free exercise Of that right, unless, of course, it's the will of their mother. And then at that point, it's on. I'm sorry. This is happening. Jesus was omniscient, but did not always exercise that right. That seems like a silly theological observation to make. I think it's glorious that way. Jesus could legitimately share in the human experience of learning. You saw it in Luke chapter 2. He grew in wisdom. Why would someone who knows everything need to grow in wisdom? Because he restricted his free exercise to just push his omniscient button and know everything. He grew and learned just like you did, even though he didn't have to. That way, Jesus could legitimately experience humanity and be surprised. You know, if you came around the corner and said, boo, Jesus would say, ah! Jesus, you didn't know I was coming around the corner? No, not today I didn't. So you were legitimately surprised? Yes, Jesus legitimately would think about things and decide what he wanted to do. Well, so you didn't know what you're going to do? No, because I didn't even know that was happening. Restricting his omniscience. I think that is so beautiful. Meaning when he came to the wedding, he didn't necessarily know everything that would happen in his day. As far as he knew, today wasn't supposed to be a day for a miracle. And then things changed. He got more information. So he responded to this situation that was made known to him. And that does not make him any less God. It just makes him more human than we often make him out to be. And by the way, if you study the story of Jesus, you notice so many stories were stories in which Jesus was interrupted as he was doing one thing. And Jesus was on his way somewhere and somebody grabbed him. And Jesus asked, who who touched me? Because power came out of me. And people are looking at him like lots of people are touching you. and, And how do you not know? He didn't know. 
I was on my way here and somebody stopped me. And so then I was delayed to somewhere else that I was wanting to go. I was just trying to get over here so I could grieve a little bit. And then the crowds were there. And so then I started dealing with the crowds. You, Jesus isn't faking it. He is fully human and fully God. Otherwise, he can't be the savior that we need him to be. I love the messiness of incarnation here. That's what Christmas is all about. Don't ever, by the way, minimize the humanity of Jesus by making him out to be, you know, uh, just a God who faked humanity. Because then you're going to start to say, of course, Jesus obeyed God. It was easy for him. Oh, no. He was really human and he really wanted to sock some people sometimes, but he did it. People annoyed him and he made choices constantly. It wasn't, no, he just pushed these buttons and he was this divine person faking to be human. As far as I know, it's not yet time for a miracle. And yet none of these big words seem to dissuade Mary from pulling the mom card. She's like, I hear all that, but I still need you to do it for these people. Look at this, uh, verse number five. Jesus' mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I love that. Yeah. Anyway, he'll take care of it. And then she leaves. Uh, I've wrestled with this, but I cannot help but believe that Jesus responds to the faith of Mary more than he responds to her maternity. Mary expresses such faith. And Spirit of God, may I have the faith of Mary that says, whatever Jesus says, do that, and whatever you're concerned about will be fine. Do whatever he says. Those are glorious words of faith. Do whatever Jesus says. I don't know that one. Just do what he says and we'll be good. And I cannot help but believe Jesus responds to that. And then this miracle. Verse number six. Nearby stood six stone water jars. The kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, sidebar, and he said, Everyone brings out the best, the choicest wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Well played, dude. Well played. And that church was the first miracle Jesus ever performed on earth. Turning water into wine at a party and not just any wine the choicest finest wine these people had ever tasted the organizers are blown away the crisis is averted and the party goes on okay 
This is where I imagine the church huddled in a corner with furrowed brows and lots of questions. Mainly, uh, are we seriously just going to move on like nothing just happened? Are we seriously just going to act like we're okay with this? If you've ever thought about this, this is the most diabolical, most controversial miracle ever. What? John chapter 2. What? Man, this is messy. And I just want to say to you, would you consider making room in your heart for this Christmas season to maybe be a little messier than you usually like? Because that's what Jesus would have done. Because I can tell you with a high level of confidence, Jesus would have been canceled by many of our churches for John chapter 2 at so many levels. And yet in the midst of all this messiness, I think we learn such beautiful things about Jesus. And we are invited in such beautiful ways to be like him. Here are a couple of things. I love in this story that Jesus chooses proximity over perception. He chooses closeness with the people he cares about over how it might look. I love that. (laughs) I'm telling you, we would be huddled in a corner. Jesus got invited to a party where he knew there would be turning up, carrying on, and definitely drinking. And he went. He He accepted the invitation. And at no point did he seem overly concerned about how that could make him look. Especially as he's just trying to launch his ministry of righteousness. At no point does he seem overly concerned that people might lump me in with these partiers and these crazy day drinkers. Because it mattered more to him... That he was there with his friends. Than how he may be perceived. I don't know if I mentioned at the start that some of this may mess with your sensibilities. Then people drank so much wine that they ran out. And Jesus stayed ask you for a show of hands but come on how many of you think Jesus would have endorsed the drunkenness and the over excessive use of alcohol at this party come on he would never have endorsed it he would never have supported it because he says in his words do not be drunk with wine and yet he was there while the people around him did it I'm like that's messy Jesus I don't like that one 
And I'm just telling you right now, this Christmas season, we will have many opportunities to choose between proximity and perception. I wonder what you would choose. I mean, I don't want to buy a Christmas gift for them. No, otherwise, you know, they'll perceive that as support for that one thing they did three years ago that we know is wrong. We're going to go with perception. I mean, if we go to that reunion, they might perceive that to mean that we've forgiven them and we've forgotten all about what happened, you know, and so, mm mm-mm. If we let our kids hug us, they may think all this snotty-nosed things they said to us two days ago are like, okay, so palms to their faces, honey. We don't want them perceiving us as endorsing what they said last week. If I accept that friend request, I mean, people might perceive me as agreeing with their politics, and there's no coming back from that. And if I go to the bar with my pickleball buddies, because that's what we do after pickleball, you know, um, you know, people might see me there, and it will make Jesus look bad. I can't be seen with you. You know, I love you, but I can't be seen with you or around you because then um, people will think I'm like you and that will make Jesus look bad. They will think that <clears throat> I support your ch- sexual choices. Well, do you? Well, you know, I don't. We've talked about what I believe. But people may think I do. So stay at a distance. Proximity will mess with a perception. So uh, stay at a distance. We don't want to make Jesus look bad. And I read this story and I can't help but believe that Jesus would say, that makes me look bad. Because that's not what I was like. When did you see me do that? The insult that they used when they wanted to diss Jesus was that they would call him the friend of what? And what would Jesus do? If he honest, we're friends. Fact. You're a friend of sinners. Yes, I am. (laughs) And I just want to say, praise you, Jesus, that you are a friend with sinners. Otherwise, I would have no hope. Jesus is like, of course, we're your sinners, right? And I came close. That's the whole point of Christmas. That Jesus came near Emmanuel, God, with us. Man, we are so much more protective of the reputation of Jesus than he was. We're going to make Jesus look bad. Jesus is like, I did a fine job of that myself. By hanging out with you. He 
is there anyone you need to maybe reach out to or connect with? Or maybe people at work that you've just held at a distance. Or maybe people in your family because they did something or they believed something or they practiced something. And you're like, but that's wrong. And uh, in order for me to show you how wrong it is, I'm going to keep my distance. I wonder if the Spirit wouldn't invite you to consider what Jesus was like. And maybe shock them by calling them on your way home this afternoon. Maybe shock her by inviting her to that Christmas gathering that she's not been included to in years because of her role in the divorce 10 years ago. Well, people might think that I'm taking and perception. I'm, not, I'm just asking you what your savior would think. Proximity over perception. I don't want to be lumped in with them. Jesus was like, I was lumped in with you. Um, here's some bad news, by the way. Um, just, I'm sorry to spoil maybe the season for you, but... Um, Every single person you are close to, pick your top three. Every single one of them. I'm not encouraging you to ask them, just trust me. Every single person that you're close to does at least one thing that you morally disagree with. But you're close to them still. And they live in your house. And they will be invited to your Christmas thing. The only reason we ever play this game is because, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, it's because you don't know what their thing is. Or it's because, well, that one's not sinful enough. That one doesn't bother me too much. And we've categorized now that one, mm-mm. I'm saying everybody who you're close to, they're doing something. So if we start playing that game, we can't be close to anybody. All right, just thought I'd share that. So um, moving on. Uh, I love how Jesus shows this, I'm calling it his, his posture over his plans. And uh, the main reason for that is because they both start with peace and I was too far down this road. Um, I love Jesus's whole plan for how he would launch his miracle ministry gets totally interrupted by a need that gets brought to his attention at a wedding party. I'm just imagining Jesus is like, wait a minute. Okay. So I'm going to change what I thought was going to happen. And my first miracle is going to be what? Jesus' first miracle was what? He raised a little baby from, nope. He healed this elderly person's, nope. He turned water into wine. This, I'm just saying. Jesus dealt with a wine crisis. That's how his miracle ministry started. And I'm telling you, this season you will have very well laid plans. You know where you're going and who's going to be there. 
who you're buying gifts for and, and, and who's not going to be there and, and what you're doing on this date and then what you're doing on this date and what you're doing on that date. I'm just saying, would you consider a posture of interruptible spirit? You may bring something and I'm, what? I was planning this break to, to like fix that thing in my house. Turns out my kids have been feeling missed by me. So, all right. Guess that's what it's going to be. I was not planning on inviting that person. But then I heard our neighbor has no one to be with. So, we took an apostasy and our plans were interrupted. And can I just tell you, I, just, I pray that for all of us, like Jesus, we'll have a posture of being willing to be interrupted by things that are brought to our attention by the Spirit or by our moms, because our moms love to do that, or by people who are close to us or, or someone at work or something that becomes. And I'm telling you, it's in the messiness of interrupted plans that some of the best stories happen. Read the Bible. Wait, so you were going where and doing what? And then what? Jesus! Son of David! Over here, his disciples are like, we've got to go this way. Jesus is like, no, detour. Constantly. And I pray that there will be a posture that's willing to say, Father, whatever you want to do to interrupt, may I have the posture like Jesus to learn. And that's someone who didn't have to. And I just pray that your, your plans are, are interruptible and are successfully interrupted. Um, last thing, I, um, I love how Jesus chooses compassion over calculation. Um, this struck me so much as an extension of what we've already talked about. Jesus' first miracle turns water into wine. Did I say wine? I meant Jesus turns water into 180 gallons of wine. I'm just saying, have you ever thought about that? Like I read over the story, I'm like, oh, toast. Jesus, a little glass of wine. No, like a winery, right? Like this is, this is a lot of how controversial is this? There's Jesus, the wine pusher. I mean, this is crazy to me. Do you know how many people may get drunk from Jesus' distillery service? Jesus makes one. Do you know, Jesus, that people could get drunk, will get drunk on the wine that you created? That is so controversial. Doesn't this make him an accessory? I love Jesus turns water into wine because it concerns him. That his friends might be socially humiliated. He feels compassion for their situation. Jesus did not make wine so that people would get drunk. That's not what stirred him. He did it to provide for his friends 
who had a crisis. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. And by the way, let's just be clear. In this story, the wine is not evil. Even though people might use it as such, it's not evil. And that wasn't what Jesus did it for. And I just say to all of us, man, let compassion win this season. Do not withhold kindness. Do not withhold generosity because of what someone might end up doing with it. If you are moved by a need, meet it. If you are stirred with compassion for a concern in someone's story, step in and meet it. That's what Jesus did. Stop with a calculation. Well, but if I, if I help that person whose sexual preferences are unbiblical, if I help them move houses, what if they use that house for stop it? If you're moved to help them, help them move. But what if they, if we go down that path, you will never shake another person's hand. I'm just telling you right now. Well, what if they, and then like, just, just don't. We will boycott everything because I guarantee you that the tip you give to the server at lunch, he may use it. To do something that you disagree with. Well therefore let's be stingy and not tip for Jesus. Calculating. But if I do this. What if they. Do that. And for many of us we've withheld that. From if we give freedom. to My daughter called us out on this. Like if you give us freedom. Then you're so concerned. with, Then you may probably do this. And then you're going to end up doing what I did. When I was a teenager. So I'm going to withhold. If I give you financial whatever. Even though I feel moved to. Then I overcalculate, overcalculate, And it keeps us from responding with. Compassion. And I'm so thankful that Jesus doesn't say, well, then I should probably stop pouring out grace on all of y'all just in case you use it to become snooty and superior to the people in the world around you. I mean, if you give the church grace, do you know what they're going to do with it, Jesus? They will abuse it and they might misuse it. And so, yeah, I better cut that. Yeah, I better stop the sun from shining because, man, he's going to get a tan and he's going to start thinking he's cuter than he really is. And then he's going to start acting like he's better than other people. So, shut the sun. No more sun because they may misuse it. And so, we withhold good and we withhold compassion because, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know what that person might do and and what they may end up posting because you helped them in some way or another. I pray that we would choose compassion over calculation. And I can imagine Jesus is like, and it's so fascinating, right, that y'all may get up in arms like on something like this. But no one has ever taken me to task for feeding 5,000 people with food. Because you forget that overeating is a sin too. 
So should I stop providing food? Should I stop providing money? Should I stop over anything? Anything. No, but the wine, that was there because people might misuse it. But the food, that one's not as bad, right? And I just say there's something about Jesus and the messiness with which he enters into these places driven by the primary virtues of love and compassion that eliminates some of the calculation. There's almost a like, Jesus, help us to be compassionate and to trust you with what you are going to do beyond that. Verse number 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And I pray that that will be true for us this season. That as we show up like Jesus and as we reflect him, that it will reveal his glory and the people around us will believe in him because we're in the middle of messes and because we're showing compassion and because we're stepping into proximity with people that maybe we've kept at a distance because of perception for Jesus' sake. I love that his disciples believe Jesus at a party where he just turned water into wine. Incredible. I'm going to pray. Uh, Before I do, I just want to say to those of you who maybe don't know Jesus personally, I'm so thankful that you get to hear something of what he's like. Contrary to what you may have heard or believed, he is not ashamed to come close and be associated with you, no matter what the rest of us might think, and no matter what you've done or how badly you've messed up. Jesus is not taking notes and condemning. Jesus comes close to forgive and to bring freedom. And that invitation is on the table. Would you invite Jesus? Jesus, I'm open. Come close to me. Forgive me of my sin. Make me right with God. There is a Jesus this Christmas season who wants to come close and change your life forever. So, Father, I pray for us. Help us to to be like Jesus. Help us to be moved and stirred by Jesus and who he is and what he is like. Jesus, thank you for for being a friend of sinners. Thank you for coming close. Thank you for your love and your compassion um, for generations and generations and generations. And thank you for the ways that you pour that out on me when I abuse it all the time. And yet here you are, close and full of grace. May we show up in the world reflecting you so that people may see your glory and believe in you this season. It's in your name we pray. Amen.